Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm here with architect Fiona Windsor, who I've been looking at her work for a number of years now and she's a very considered architect. And what I appreciate about Fiona is just her attention to detail and the way she communicates with clients. I think I think she's a very talented uh, architect, but I also call her, like myself, a service provider. It's something that architects tend not to um, think is so important, but um, Fiona is one of these architects who really does address the client. Welcome to the show, Fiona. Thank you, Stephen. Well, for those who don't know Fiona Windsor, how would you describe your practice? It's a, a small practice in a studio. Um, it's Melbourne-based and uh, basically we're taking on handfuls of projects at any one time so that there can be really strong client focus. I need to be absolutely involved in the process for any project. Um, so the backup is, is really um, more about technical um, and bolstering the design process, but I'm very hands-on with, with every project. Now, Fiona, you started in Brisbane. You graduated at Brisbane University in architecture. That's correct. And then you went on to work for some large practices like Bly Volaneeld. That's right. With Shane Thompson. What was your experience of working in a large practice? Um, that particular experience was, was great because Shane Thompson had a very strong design um, role in, within Blyvall and Neild at the time. He was really the one winning the awards um, for Blyvall and Neild and he really had a, um, a kind of studio within um, the umbrella of Blyvall and Neild. So being part of that smaller group meant that you did have the ability to have... Um, a lot of um, uh, closeness to every process within producing a building. So uh, it was like a small practice within a large practice. Yes, that's right. Um, I have worked in some larger practices and, and not fared well because uh, the politics and um, large-scale sort of processes just don't sit so well with me. So I have been more drawn to design-focused smaller practices over the you know over mm. years of working with various people. So when you did come to Melbourne, which year was that, Fiona? Uh, that was eighteen years ago. Oh. So it's a while now. So nineties. Yeah, early, that's right. Sort of early mid nineties, and I worked with Peter Elliott Architects um, for a number of years when I arrived. And also Boschler. That's right. Nick Boschler, who's yes. known for very soaring, um, soaring very. Um, quite lavish homes. Exactly, yes, and very particular design approach. Um, so that was that was an interesting um, period of time as well. So when was when did you establish a practice? I established my practice uh, about six years ago. So it's mm-hmm. fairly young, really, as a as a. Um, as architectural practices go. How do you start a practice? Because do you wait for the first project to come in or do you just start touting for business? How does it work? I think I got to a point where um, because I I knew I was going to have my second child, um, it was a case of 
how do I go back or should I go back to work for somebody else or do I have enough um, happening for myself to take that um, step off the plank, if you like, and risk the high seas of and, and danger, um, especially if you just, you know, had a baby and, uh, you know, you don't have... Um, old school networks and whatnot um, that a lot of others in Melbourne would have or, or do mm. have. Um, and I took that risk. I took that risk. I had um, one project under my belt. Um, I had one on the go and that I'd been working on while I had been working, bef- you know, at the same time and just took the risk. So I had very little, actually, um, to um, to go by. So it was <laughs> a bit scary. Mm. Mm. Uh, one of your earlier projects, well, probably midway through, a few years now, but it was a very significant project that won an award for you from the uh, uh, Australian Institute of Architects in the category of alterations and additions, was the Eyelid House. Yes, yes. Very interesting little terrace in South Yarra for a family. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, because a lot of people are moving to smaller places now, and are doing without a lot of the things that people have in the suburbs. That's right. I I really uh, admire people who are taking on um, the idea of of a good-sized family, in this case twins and another child, so three children, parents, um, and choosing to live on a small block. Single-fronted terrace. A single-fronted terrace. And, and making that a compact family home um, and really doing as much as we could to, you know, to make that all very workable and very livable. Um, and they're still there and they're very happy. It's, it's worked really so well. So how, Fiona, how do you make a small terrace on a very compact block work for a family? What are the things that you had to do? I mean, the outside was very much treated like an outdoor room. Mm. But what are the other things that you had to deal with? I, I think it's important that parents are able to have a space that can be separated from the children, at, if, if not immediately, um, certainly, certainly at some you know, time, as soon as the, the kids are getting a little bit independent. And so I think it's important that you can create some separation um, between where the children sleep and occupy space and where the parents um, can have um, you know, a, a greater sense of privacy. So that's been achieved by an upper-level studio bedroom and ensuite um, in this case. And then a very, I, I think you have to have a very collective... Um, open space that feels spacious as your um, lounge, dining and kitchen area and really make that uh, communal um, sort of focus. So, so that, that has that um, working very strongly in this case. And I suppose it's also changing the experiences within that house, so each space feels quite different. That's right. A, a variety of scale um, is something I think is very important in any project um, so that you you do experience quite different things from one space to another. Um, the aesthetic and materials all talk to each other, but ultimately the 
the scale and proportions um, and how you place furniture. I, I do focus on quite a lot of built-in elements that um, make it very clear how you use a space and at the same time allowing for a lot of fluidity moving um, in a flowing way through a space so that you're not actually conscious of how you're being directed mm -hmm. to use the space. The other thing that's quite significant and, and perhaps you'd like to say something about this is the now it's all about privacy and not being seen, you know, not looking into neighbours' back gardens, which, you know, I can understand. But have we gone too far? I mean, this house is beautifully detailed in, in the... It's called the eyelid home in the mm. way the roof folds down at the back to prevent overlooking for these apartments, these three-storey th apartments. Have we taken it too far? Is it the fact that, you know, if we are living in the inner city, we should expect a certain amount of overlooking? Mm. That's part of city living. It, it, it is. I, I actually tend to um, agree with that idea. I think we do take it too far. Um, just around November last year, I was in Barcelona and the, um, the sort of um, hostel, hotel I was staying in had a, um, a view from my, um, from my room into a kind of large courtyard space with uh, buildings that were approximately, you know, five levels high. So th within this very large space, all these apartments were looking onto one another and it, it really was like, you know, rear, rear, or I think it was rear view window, the Hitchcock film, and you're just watching other people. You can, you can do that and if, you know, if you want to. Um, I, th I thought that was really quite exciting. Um, so you think we've taken it too far, some yeah. of the rules and regulations? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, in in taking measures to create privacy, I don't think we're bulletproof. We're not altogether successful. Um, the South Yarra area, for example, um, has a lot of um, intensity and it's 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 really actually part of the fabric. It's almost unavoidable not to be able to have some overlooking and um, interference in that way. So. The other thing, Fiona, with the eyelid house is that the owners decide, look, we won't have car parking, off-street car parking. We'll That's use right. the back garden as another room. Is that something you're finding that people are saying, look, the car isn't pivotal pivotal to the design anymore? Oh, it's just fantastic that they are doing that. Um, I think where where people are putting less value on their cars, um, the better. And and the idea that, you know, planning um, still has, if you, ha you, know, you have a three-bedroom home, you've got to have two car spaces, you know, if you've got, if you've got the space. Mm. This is just ridiculous. Um, if you're within a five, ten-kilometre radius of the city, um, the, these sorts of rules really need to be shifted and adjusted mm. um, to, to not penalise people who've got very, very good access to... Um, good infrastructure, public transport and mm -hmm. so on. Mm. Now another house you've just recently finished is in Hawthorne, um, a very interesting house, a Victorian house, where you've sliced off the back and created a, a uh, curvaceous pavilion. Tell me a little bit about that design. It's fascinating. I mean, there, to me, there's elements of the post-war, mm. um, the roundhouse mm. um, by Grounds, Roy Grounds, but it's a fascinating project. How did that evolve? And how do you explain 
a concept like that to clients who are generous to, to start with, but they wouldn't perceive something like this. I described it a bit like a jewel. But mm-hmm. how, how do you work something like that, and how did you actually present them the idea to the client in the first instance? Um, the client came to me with um, very little in the way of a form. It was really just you know a box-ticking exercise of we want this many bedrooms, we want um, this you know just two bathrooms. Um, we might be thinking of a of a plunge pool, but not sure. Um, so they they didn't they didn't know whether they were needed a two story box on the back, and they were fully expecting um, a, a box. box on the back. Yes, and it was really um, it evolved from actually considering a car space. So in my mind, I imagined a car turning in from the laneway. And this had a curved form, but the car just kept driving around mm-hmm. in my head <laughs> until it came, flew off mm-hmm. the backyard altogether and it just, there was no car at the end. And so there's no car space. There's no car space. And the clients actually didn't want a car space in the end, but this form stayed. Um, I, I made a, a physical concept model, so a very basic model, and showed them this model. And I think they were captivated by what they could do after that and, and really left... Um, so, the, like the other people, they weren't going to sacrifice the design for a car. That's right, that's right. They they had no interest in a car, as it turned out. Um, I had just assumed they'd want at least one car, <laughs> and I was wrong, so it was, uh, that was a win-win situation. Fabulous. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about it, it's not a conventional kitchen, living, dining area. Those who can't obviously can't see it. Um, but it's it's the the materials are quite fascinating. The kitchen bench for in, for instance is like a, a a bra made of brass and it's circular, almost like a copper coin mm. or a brass coin. And um the dining area has um smoke mirrored cupboards. Mm. Joinery, mm. very reflective surfaces. So you've got a lot of brass, and the ceiling is zigzag, almost herringbone, mm. with these plywood, um, plywood uh, materials, and some of them painted, some of them not. So silver, gold. The owners from in uh, had a love of India. Mm. Was that part of the palette? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there, there was. Um almost a, a kind of sixth sense that occurred within the relationship um, with this client. And I, I say that because so many things really happened in a um, in an unspoken way. It, it, was, it was very slowly building a palette um, and uh, some of which was just a, an intuitive response to having gotten to know the client and then other things where the client would tell me stories about, for example, her father who was a jeweller and he was of the ilk who liked to mix metals and so that became very much something to So bring. silver and golds together. Silver and gold and pewter together. Um, so, so that was, uh, I just absolutely latched onto that. I, I love working with people's memory um, and and strong associations um, with their experiences in life. Um, those sorts of things I find wonderful to bring to the project in an abstract way, but 
what it does is it makes the client feel um, comfortable. very comfortable. Um, they feel very connected to what they have. Um, it's very personalised, but it's done in a way that, well, hopefully it's done in a way that um, makes it universally um, loved as well. Her father also used to hang light bulbs in a certain way. He used to drape them from the ceiling to get different effects. Not for effect, but just the way he was working as a gold and silver smith. He used to hang, the, arrange the lights from his shed. And you mentioned that the lights were actually very evocative of the way he used to hang his lights, not mm. just because exposed light bulbs are a trendy thing to do at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I, again, well, that was quite a specific requirement that we contained to the old part of the house, not to the extension. Um, and and I was more than happy to accommodate that. I, I really felt that the Victorian um, double-fronted part of the house lent itself really well to something um, that is is quite romantic mm. like that. What were the clients like when they saw the scheme? Oh, I think they, they were really um, surprised, um, very surprised because it, it just took them into a whole other direction that they were expecting. But Which was the glass box. Yeah, uh, and I, I think they just immediately really loved it um, mm. and could imagine, you know, um, how this, you know, space worked because it was a physical model. Because it is quite an unusual scheme, did you have to present a model or did you just present a series of sketches? It was a physical model that was presented very, very early on at, at the mm. very early concept stage and, mm. and that was used as a reference continuously through the you know, through the project. It did evolve and change, mm -hmm. um, but essentially the um, concept remained the same. And there's also lovely, very personal touches, like hand-painted uh, doors were done from um, an artist in India, mm. uh, which also brings another layer to the design. It does. Um, Phoebe, the client, um, uh, purchased those doors, um, and it was... Turns out that they were um, hand painted by a fellow called Krishna Kama, or something like this. I've probably got it wrong, but um, a personal family friend. And uh, so there's definitely something that gives the the whole front of the house this um, powerful um, connection, personal connection for Phoebe. Um, and and her family, so I think um, not having seen the doors until they were really ready to hang, mm. I just had to go on um, imagining what they might be like, mm. and crossing fingers that it would all come together and work. Uh, but uh, I think it it does work really well. I mean, Fiona, it's a lot easier just to deliver the glass box, and a lot of people just do that, and they just say, "Look, that's what." You know, it's easier, it's cheaper, it's more expedient. But it's not as pleasurable to get a result like like this is quite exceptional. Um, is it hard Is it hard to get clients to go with something different? I mean, these clients were, were very open-minded, but generally speaking, is it very... Is it difficult selling? Because you are selling a concept that is quite different. Mm. Um... I guess what 
I'm finding is happening, um, and it's not that I've set out to do it, uh, but when people have come to me to for a project, um, I'm finding what's happening is that what I what I might produce for them as a concept is taking them to a to another level or another place and um, if if they're very excited by that and um, in a number of cases that that's been what has happened then there's just this um, terrific energy that just pushes the project through um, on a very positive note mm-hmm. um, and and there's a, a level of trust because everyone's excited about getting it done um, and and really aiming for it and doing it um, and because it is so new it's not what they necessarily expected so it I, th- I think where you, where you can do that um, that that's something that's making my work different perhaps and um, uh, and and that people are getting a lot more than than what they set out to do. What do you think? You, you're starting to work on a new project, another ha- large house in South Yarra. Well, the other one was quite modest. This is quite large. What are the things that you think of an architect, what are the main challenges facing an architect today? Oh, that's a, it's, that's a what, really big question. Um, <laughs> I think... I think the challenge is, um, well, one of the challenges is is making sure that um, people can become more receptive to the value of meaning um, that can be imbued in a project um, or any you know any scale of project. I think the loss of meaning is is at high risk um, because there's so much. Um, emphasis on on simply form making as a as an academic kind of um, approach that doesn't necessarily have any connection to the place or to the people who are going to use it um, or to what is meaningful for them. Um, I I think keeping a focus on what's meaningful is is very very uh, it's challenging there's there's a push from from the general population especially youth coming up of a grab bag of quick fixes these are architects I think or just designers just, in general I think people in general um, latch on to very easy to grab um, ob, you know objectification um, ways of seeing things rather than whether they have any meaning or not. Um, so I think this is this is a big challenge, and I think meaning is I think a story or the or the backstory to any design is crucial. That you know when the clients of the Hawthorne House or even the South Yarra House they walk into that space, it's not just a house. Yeah, that's it right. resonates for years, mm. and it does. As you said, it is the memories as well. Yes, that makes it quite special. Fiona, what's the future? What do you? What are the things that you want to do in the future that you haven't done? Are you going to continue with very fine bespoke housing, or are you going to? Are there I, other things on the agenda? 
I, I do love residential work and it's certainly something um, I'm happy to continue specialising in but I would really love to be doing multiple residential um, I think living um, and and uh, working environments um, but not on a high-rise scale are something I'm very in- so interested in. Some medium-density townhouses. Yes, yeah, that's right. And inner city work is something I'm very interested in to densify, help densify the city. Um, yeah, so multiple residential work, I'm absolutely looking for that. A very hard market, very um, male-dominated area of work. Because so. developers generally want quick turnover. Probably. Um, I think maybe, you know, there's just lack of awareness that women can be very, very good at these things as mm. well. So, As you said, it's a bit of a boys' club <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to change. But, um, look, thanks so much, Fiona, for coming in today. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, I look forward to future projects and thanks so much. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you.